Welcome to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate, experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast notes with links available at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast. Hi, welcome to Escrow Out Loud and the first of our three-part series exploring racism in San Francisco and California real estate. I'm Matt Fuller, your podcast host and broker of record for Jackson Fuller Real Estate. In honor of Black History Month, I've been working on a three-part podcast series about racism in California real estate. Part one, today's episode, begins with acknowledging and seeking to take accountability for my industry's role in promoting discrimination in housing. And to help me tell this story, my guest today is a retired real estate broker and a guy I miss seeing on the daily as part of the San Francisco real estate community. We work together at Zephyr Real Estate. Please welcome uh, my friend and an incredible real estate broker, Don Saunders. Well, thank you. How are you, Don? I'm doing great, Matt. It's good to talk to you. You sound very chill and retired. How's retirement treating you? Retirement is great. I wish this pandemic was over so we could at least travel a little bit. But other than that, it's going great. Yeah, I I said my biggest accomplishment in 2020 was just surviving. So looking forward to traveling again someday, too. Although I still have to work. I'm not retired like you. All right. So you're not old yet. That's the problem. Right? (laughs) (laughs) So, Don, our story today is about a state ballot proposition that I wasn't even aware existed until I started doing research for this episode. And it's a 1964 state ballot proposition that was sponsored by the California Real Estate Association. And that is an organization that's now known as the California Association of Realtors. And that's an organization to which I belong. I have actually served on their board of directors for several years as a past director now. And are you still a member, Don? I'm not a member, but when I was a member, I also served on their board of directors for probably five years, six years. Yeah, you're being very modest. You were a thing in real estate when you were active. Well, thank you. It's true. So essentially, if generally the way membership in real estate works as if you're a member of a local association. You also are a member of the state and then the National Real Estate Association. It's the triple layer cake. So, but to understand what our real estate association did in 1964, we need to back up just a little bit further. And that takes us to the Rumford Act, the Rumford Fair Housing Act that was passed in 1963. And there almost begins our story. But Don, will you start us off by giving our listeners a reminder about what the state of residential housing was around 1963? Well, you know, we can go back even a little bit further, Matt, to um, 1948, when the Supreme Court said it was illegal for owners to determine who they wanted to sell to or didn't want to sell to. And this was in 1948. It was a case, Shelley versus Kramer, I think it was. And then in 1963, the Rumford Act came in, and this was in California. Rumford was a representative from Berkeley, I think, and he put in the Fair Housing Act of 1963, which said it was illegal to discriminate buyers because of their 
race, ethnicity, marital status, sex, etc. And this was adopted in 1963 over the opposition of the California Real Estate Association, which is now CAR, California Association of Realtors. If you don't go through it really slowly, it's kind of hard to miss what happens because looking backwards from 2021, it's just like, whoa, this really happened. Yeah. So you're right. Rumford was from Berkeley. He, he owned a pharmacy here and he was the first black legislator from the Bay Area elected to the state assembly. And he was a, a heck of a hard worker. He did a ton of things. And he worked really hard to get the, the Fair Housing Act passed in 1963 over the opposition from our association. And in the act of getting it you know, passed, our association did do a pretty good job of kind of gutting the law and managed to get single families. Uh, and in fact, you know, everything less than five units was excluded from this. So it didn't touch single families in any way, shape or form. But our association was still incredibly upset that it had passed in 1963. So we immediately turn around. And as any organization or individual can in California, you can get a constitutional amendment on the state ballot. And so we actually wrote a constitutional amendment and we spent our members money, 10,000 bucks at least in 1963 dollars uh, to get enough signatures to get it on the ballot. And then once we got it uh, qualified for the ballot, we asked our members to actively support it and to ask our members to ask their clients to actively support it. So it's kind of mind blowing to me, um, you know, that this was the doing of our association. So do you want to talk a little more about Prop 14 and, and what it did? Well, yeah, I think it was interesting too. just following up on what you said. When the Association of Realtors, violently opposed to the Rumford Act, started asking for signatures to get the amendment on the ballot, they needed, I think, 480,000 people to sign the petitions. They had over a million. And another kind of a fun fact is Proposition 14 was supported by Ronald Reagan who later became the governor and our president. Um, as I was doing research for this, you can just see so many of individual and societal trajectories throughout the 70s and 80s that pretty much started right from these events and you know rippled across America in really incredible ways. So yeah, so our association, you know, sponsored Proposition 14 that would provide in part that, quote, neither the state nor any subdivision or agency thereof shall deny, limit, or abridge directly or indirectly the right of any person who is willing or desires to sell, lease, or rent any part or all of his real property to decline to sell, lease, or rent such property to such person or persons as he, in his absolute discretion, chooses. So there are two opinions about what this ballot initiative meant. And on the one side, we had the California Real Estate Association. And let me read a, a quote from the 1963 president of the California Real Estate Association, because this pretty much encapsulates the argument that our association was using. Quote, 
The Rumford Act now makes it illegal to refuse to sell, rent, lease, or otherwise deny or withhold any housing because of race, color, religion, national origin, or ancestry. We fought this Rumford forced housing bill with every ounce of our strength, Wilson said. We contend that all Americans should have the right to refuse to rent, lease, or sell to anyone and for any reason. The law takes away part of his right to decide for himself, period, end quote. So on the one hand, on we have housing freedom. Kind of reminds me of the mask argument. Um, housing freedom on one side, we will have no forced housing bills. And then on the other side, we had folks like our governor, Pat Brown. And what was the other argument? Well, I think Pat Brown's argument was this was going to uh, make California look more like Mississippi or the southern states who were absolutely discriminating and causing, you know, racial bigotry and the whole thing. That was Governor Brown's position on it. Yeah. And, you know, Governor Brown, the Democratic governor at the time, really campaigned hard against Prop 14. If you go back and you look at his speeches, he was in no way subtle about his disdain and anger about Prop 14. But as you mentioned, you know, over a million Californians qualified to get it on the, you know, signed the petition to qualify to get it on the ballot, more than double what they needed. So how did uh, how did the campaign for, for Prop 14 go, Don? Well, it was approved by every county in California except Modoc County. In Modoc County, it was defeated by only 19 votes. I don't even know where Modoc County is. I don't either. But the whole state of California did support Proposition 14. County by county. Every Los Angeles County supported it. The county and city of San Francisco supported it. It it, it passed 65% to 35%. It was not even close. No. So um, November 1964... 65 to 35, Prop 14 passes, and uh, the California Real Estate Association feels it has won housing freedom, and most other folks would look at it and saying we just wrote discrimination directly into the state constitution. Is this the end of the story? Of course not. What comes next, Don? Well, you know, just as a couple of interesting things that I picked up while looking at this, In East Palo Alto in 1954, a white family sold their home to a black family, and the California Real Estate Association went nuts. They actually had burglaries to scare the white homeowners out of that area so they could, you know, resell the properties. This, I think, was kind of the start of Block breaking, I think it's called. Yep, blockbusting. Exactly. Blockbusting, block breaking, call it what you want, it's horrible behavior. Absolutely. And this, as you remember, I don't know if you recall, East Palo Alto in late 1900s was practically all black because the white homeowners left. And then the California realtors 
ended up selling those homes to black people at exaggerated or higher prices than what they were actually worth at the time. Yeah, and ended up creating a ghetto in the process for folks not from the Bay Area. Palo Alto, as you've probably heard of, home to Stanford, an incredibly wealthy community. Steve Jobs' family and widow continues to live there, lots of other tech titans. And it's divided by the 101 freeway. And on the other side of it is East Palo Alto, which used to be just like Palo Alto until the story that you described. And by the time I moved to California in 2000, Palo Alto and East Palo Alto looked nothing like each other. Very true. A lot of social scientists have said one of the results of the Proposition 14 was the Watts riots in 1965, the Watts riots basically started over something that was very, very benign, really. A young man, young black man, was driving his mother's automobile with his brother in the car, and he was stopped by a white policeman, and the white policeman said he was driving recklessly, and they gave him a field sobriety test, which he did not pass. So the officer was going to arrest him for reckless driving and driving under the influence. The passenger, who was the driver's brother, went to get his mother, and his mother came, and they both, the driver and the mother, started resisting arrest. It started with a verbal confrontation and then became physical. The young man, the driver, got hit by a baton. That's basically what started the Watts riots. This was basically a flashpoint because the frustration, just the anger was built up in the Watts neighborhoods because of one police brutality. It was rundown area, dilapidated area. 90% of the people who lived there were renters and they couldn't get anything done you know, fix up the properties because the landlords wouldn't do it. They just kept charging rents. So the whole Watts riot was basically because of frustration as to how they were being treated, how they felt there was no hope for any other type of life. And this one incident of a young man being arrested Rumors started flying around that the police were kicking the women and one lady was pregnant who got kicked. And the next thing you know, you've got a six-day riot on your hands. Yeah, and I have to tell you, wrapping my head around the idea that my trade association that I've probably been a member of was a contributing cause to an incredibly destructive race riot has been really hard to wrap my head around. And so I've actually been doing a lot of reading about it and kind of coming to try to, to understand this because I just kept looking for something. It was like, no, this really isn't this bad. And yes, it really is this bad. And don't take Don's word for it. There was actually, as there always is, the state appointed a commission after the riots to try and figure out what happened and make recommendations so that it wouldn't happen again. And in the report itself from 1966, 67, uh, later in the 60s, it says, quote, in addition, many Negroes here felt and were encouraged to feel that they had been affronted by the passage of Proposition 14 
an initiative measure passed by two-thirds of the voters in November 1964, which repealed the Rumford Fair Housing Act, and unless modified by the voters or invalidated by the courts, will bar any attempt by state or local governments to enact similar laws. So, you know, two-thirds of the state had basically just told the minority population of California, F off, right? Like, go live in a slum. Like, we don't want you near us. And it wasn't subtle, and it wasn't even close. And I didn't know this, Don, but by the 1940s, as far back as the 1940s, 95% of Los Angeles and Southern California, residential housing was off limits to minorities because of restrictive covenants. 95%. Yep. Right? Like everyone, you know, scratches their head and say, how did inner city slums and ghettos come to be? Right? They came to be because 95% of the land we had put restrictive racial covenants on. You know, there are still, still racial covenants but they're not enforceable anymore. Back then, they were enforceable. And if you wanted to live in the large cities especially, you had certain areas that you could live in, which were basically slums, ghettos, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And then, you know, in addition to us as a state having passed Prop 14 in 1964, the federal government itself was, you know, doing all of this kind of quote unquote slum clearance and busy building freeways right through the middle of neighborhoods that were almost always black and brown neighborhoods. So as a community, you know, Watts felt under attack from pretty much everybody. And if I was a member of that community, I think I would have felt the same way. Probably. You know, they could build the uh, freeways and everything through those areas because those were the low-income areas. I mean, they're not going to build a freeway through Beverly Hills, you know, places like that. Yeah, exactly. And it's not because the, the people that live in the poor neighborhoods want the freeway, but when you're poor and struggling to even get food on the table, you don't have time to form a neighborhood association and go to all of the community meetings to outsmart the developer, right? You're just struggling to get by. You know, leisure time is a luxury. Absolutely. And the Watts riots were devastating. They lasted for six days and 34 people died in the Watts riots. There were over a thousand injuries, uh, 4,000 arrests involving 34,000 people. Over a thousand buildings were destroyed And in 1960 dollars, there was more than 40 million dollars in damages. It wasn't just a night of anger. It was six days with the National Guard, you know, armed and and people died. Yeah. uh, You know, it was it spread out from Watts also. I mean, you know, I was reading that white people driving through areas where there was a large black population were attacked just because they were white and they were there. I mean, it was just a whole lot of anger in 1965. Yeah, I'm not speaking to try and justify any of the actions, but I 100% understand the emotions. In addition to being an underlying uh, cause of the Watts riots, there was a lot of other fallout from Prop 14 as well. The governor, who supported it at the time, Pat Brown, had been elected in 1962 and then actively 
campaigned for the Rumford Act and against Prop 14, and he was up for re-election in 1966. And as soon as Prop 14 did pass, it was immediately challenged in court, and the challenges would take a couple of years, as they usually do, to get both to the state Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court. So during this time, after it had passed, until we get the Supreme Court rulings, it was the law and people were still discussing it and talking about legislative changes to it. And he ran for re-election in 1966, opposed to Prop 14. And his opponent, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, Don, was none other than Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan was the Republican candidate and in an effort to have his cake and eat it too, not only was Ronald Reagan opposed to the Rumford Fair Housing Act of 1963, saying it gave one segment of our population a right at the expense of the basic rights of all our citizens, not only was he opposed to that, he also managed to be opposed to Proposition 14 in 1964, just saying it was, quote, not a wise measure. So he triangulates the minority communities and manages to get himself elected as governor in 1966. And as uh, time will tell, he had two terms as governor, and that set him up for a run for the president in 1980. And he defeated uh, Jimmy Carter and became the president and went on to have two terms. And while all of that was happening, Don, you in your own life were uh, a young man about to embark on a a career and you became a, a realtor in Southern California in 1978. And while 1978 is more than a decade later than what we've been recently speaking of, all of the fallout from it was still taking place. So what was it like to come into this industry as a black man in 1978? Looking back on it, it was more it's more interesting looking back on it than it was when I first got into it because I had never run into, you know, situations like I ran into then. So it was just basically working my way through them. But I became a realtor, like you said, in Riverside, which is Southern California, basically a farming community with a university there. But when I got my real estate license and tried to find a job, I couldn't because no one was hiring a black real estate agent. None of the white companies were hiring a black real estate agent at that time. Finally, a lady did. She helped me you know, redo my resume, et cetera, et cetera. And she told me that if I failed, it would reflect on her and she would probably lose her job. Luckily, I didn't fail. But even when I got into the business in 1978 in Riverside, you still had areas that were 90% or 95% black. You had areas that were completely white, and you really didn't have that much of an interaction between the two. And I think that was one of the reasons that white real estate companies in uh, Riverside were adverse to hiring a black person because they figured, okay, a black person will not be able to relate to the white homeowners, and the white homeowners wouldn't be able to relate to a black real estate agent. But luckily, that didn't 
you know, hold true. I probably did 75% of my business with white sellers and buyers as opposed to the other areas because I think, I don't know, it's just, I think the white sellers, buyers, et cetera, et cetera, trusted me because I worked hard. So I didn't really have a problem working in real estate in um, Riverside. I enjoyed it, actually. 1978, none of the real estate companies want to hire you. But once you find someone that's willing to to hire you, take a chance on you, as, as it were, um, you do incredibly well. You, you know, you've thought through your business plan. You know, you've targeted the military base. Does really well for you. How long do you stick around in Riverside? I was in real estate there for four years. And was it basically a positive experience once you got into the industry or did you kind of often end up getting rejected by white people because you were black? No, it was basically a very positive experience. I had one um, incident, which I thought was really funny. I don't think the people thought it was funny, but talking to the people over the phone They were interested in having someone come out and take a look at their property and possibly put it on the market. And while we're talking, I said, I'd be more than happy to do it. Oh, great. So we set up an appointment and the lady says, oh, by the way, we don't want to deal with any um, Negroes or Chinese. And she used derogatory um, words for both races so I said, oh, that's not a problem. And I got an agent. He, he wasn't Chinese. He was Japanese. But I figured they couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> and we showed up on these people's doorstep. Oh, hi. We're from, well, the company was Forrest Olson then. It was a Coldwell Banker affiliate. He says, hi, we're from uh, Forrest Olson. And I was talking to you on the phone. A lady slammed the door so hard, I'm surprised it didn't crack. <laughs> We just stood on the porch and laugh. <laughs> I have so much respect for you for just going. I think that makes it. Actually, it was fun. I was the assistant manager in Claremont Montclair Forrest Olson office for a year and a half, I think. And actually, it again, it was a very pleasant situation. I enjoyed it. The people were very nice. You know, nothing but good things to say about the people there. From Claremont Montclair, they promoted me to the actual manager, and I got an office in Anaheim, which is part of Orange County. That basically was where I did run into more, you know, the racist attitudes and everything than any place else that I've ever worked. Orange County basically is still pretty much all white and very, very Republican. Republican. I didn't want to say that, but since you did, I'll, I'll say it. that's what I was thinking. I was trying to think to go around it. But I did run into, you know, a few problems there, but nothing really that made me rethink my career projection or whatever. It was just, you know, things that happened and you worked with them or worked around them. Got it. As a sales manager, you know, in addition to the buying and selling, you were also, you know, recruiting and managing agents. Did you have issues with white agents not 
wanting to work for or having issues working for you as a black man? You know, I never did. I did have one lady who, you know, she was leery about it. And I didn't know that at the time because she did come to work for me. But about a year, well, not even a year later, she said, I was really worried how it would look if I was working for a black manager. And what I've discovered is it doesn't make any difference. As long as you know what you're talking about and you can help me succeed, then that's great. And I felt really good about that. That's an awesome story. And I have no doubt that you did help her succeed. (laughs) Yeah, she did very well. She also got a sales manager job uh, with our company, Forrest Olson, at the time. When did you end up in Northern California? 1983, latter part of 83, earlier part of 84. Uh, One of the guys that I actually worked for in Southern California had come up to Northern California, and he was a vice president with Grubb & Ellis, which was Grubb & Ellis residential realtors at that time. And he was telling the person who was in charge up here, who worked directly for Hal Ellis, that he knew an agent manager in Southern California who would do a good job up here in Northern California. So basically, they recruited me to come to Northern California. And it's a Kind of an interesting story. When I first came to Northern California, they were basically looking for an office to put me in. One of the offices they had me go take a look at, or they took me to look at, was in Orinda. And I, you know, met the people in the office in Orinda. And as I was leaving, this elderly lady came up to me and she says, confidentially, let's go in the conference room so I can talk to you confidentially. And she says, if I were you, I would not take this job. She says, most of these people in Orinda come to Orinda to get away from Oakland, to get away from, you know, the black population, the problems of the city, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think you would be happy here. So I turned Orinda down and I thank her to this day. Did you know that about Orinda, having never lived up here? I knew nothing about Arenda. Yeah, I mean, because as soon as you say Arenda, you know, I want to say that's kind of our ver- version of Orange County. <laughs> yeah, I found that out later. <laughs> so once you got to Northern California, you know, my experience of living in Northern California is that we find ourselves morally superior to Southern California. Uh, at least that's what we ourselves. Any difference? Was racism the same as what you encountered in Southern California? Better, worse? You know, I can't say I really had a racial problem in Northern California. Uh, Even the lady in Orenda, that wasn't a problem. She was really trying to be helpful. Um, But I have never really run into a situation where it's become totally racial. There was a lot of fallout from Prop 14 in terms of the damage it did to minority communities, their ability to accumulate wealth, property ownership, generational wealth transfers. And, you know, when you're in the business in 78, you're still seeing, you know, blockbusting is a business model. Neighborhoods are incredibly segregated. Like, do you want to talk about kind of you know, the other 
impacts, outcomes, you know, what damage done? Well, you know, you look at, well, the redlining, I kind of over-talked you there, I'm sorry, was also one of the things where mortgage companies would not lend in certain areas. And those certain areas were usually minority areas, be they African-American, I think we were Negroes back then, Chinese areas, I shouldn't say just Chinese, I should just say Asian areas, they were also redlined. So I think one of the major things that came from this period, and probably a little bit is still prevalent today, is the values of properties in a minority area as opposed to the value of the same house in a white area. I've read anywhere from 50% less value is assigned to the same house in a black neighborhood as it would be assigned in a white neighborhood, from 50% up to 72%, depending on the neighborhoods and uh, who's doing the actual appraisals and things like that. I think this is probably still a carryover from Prop 14. In San Francisco, most of the neighborhoods are, you know, more mixed, more diverse, but you still have some neighborhoods that are primarily one race or another. And in those neighborhoods, if you had a three-bedroom, two-bath home, single family, et cetera, et cetera, it's going to be less than a home, say, in Merced Manor, which is primarily a white neighborhood. Yeah. You know, I mean, historically in San Francisco, minority communities were able to find housing south of what's now Interstate 280. And if you look at property values kind of south of 280 versus north of 280, you're 100% right. I mean, obviously, the California housing shortage and the incredible, you know, upfront on prices makes the San Francisco numbers a whole nother story. But still, you know, to this day, historically black neighborhoods like the Bayview, same house that you can find over in the sunset on the west side of town. One of them is nine ninety five. The other one is a million four. Yes. Yes. And it's it's interesting, even on this side of two eighty you know, like Merced Heights, Ingleside Terrace, those were primarily black neighborhoods or African-American neighborhoods, whatever. And then you've got uh, Forest Hill and, um, oh, what's the neighborhood right across? Laguna Honda. No, no, the really nice neighborhood. St. Francis Wood? St. Francis Wood. Things were like St. Francis Wood was... 99.9% Caucasian at one time. And that's why Ingleside Terrace was developed because that was developed so that the black people could live there in Ingleside Terrace. And there are really nice homes in Ingleside Terrace, but the price differential is quite a bit different. And that's like right across a couple of streets. Yeah. You know, and it really, the only difference is which side of Ocean Avenue are you on? Yes. Yes. So I didn't know that was the genesis uh, for those neighborhoods. I mean, obviously, I knew St. Francis Wood, 
and those neighborhoods had racially restrictive covenants, but I didn't know that was kind of the response. And yeah, you know, I mean, even in San Francisco, it was very much the law of the land. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Willie Mays, I believe, tried to buy a house in Forest Hill. Yes. I think still there's the stereotype that black people bring the values down in white neighborhoods. So if you move, if a black person moves into a white neighborhood, the whole neighborhood value is going to decrease. I think that's one of the reasons I spend so much time working on my yard and my house and everything, because I don't want to bring the values down in the neighborhood. It's funny in a way, because I think, you know, when someone owns something, be you black, white, or whatever, you're going to take uh, better care of it or more care of it. One of the things when, you know, they had the slums over off of Alamany, it was because they weren't owned by anyone. And, well, they were owned by the city, basically. And the people who lived in them were tenants. And the tenants didn't take care of them, so you had an instant slum. But if they had sold the properties to individuals, I think that would have taken away the, you know, the slum. It would, people would have pride of ownership. And without pride of ownership, people just kind of tend to let things go. Yeah. And it's not just housing, right? I mean, how do you treat the car you rent versus the car you own? True. Or is that just me? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think when you're renting a car, you don't care what you do in it or whatever. But when it's your car, then you make sure you check the oil, tires, et cetera, et cetera. Keep it clean. You know, it's the same with the home. Exactly. Except hopefully they don't have tires. Although some houses do. We're not even going to get into that one. (laughs) So, you know, Prop 14 and our association led this argument back in the 1960s that is reverberated to today that, you know, it wasn't racial discrimination. It was housing freedom. And that's really what, as a trade association, we've been fighting for. And I want to go back to that original argument because it's a false argument. And if we look around, America has a social contract And the social contract says, I, as an individual, am willing to give up some of my rights in exchange for some communal rights that are really good for me and you and everyone and the commons, right? It's a win, 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 win. And this isn't just abstract, right? Like, I mean, we think of them as just for granted, but the sewer system, right? I mean, that's a social good. If we didn't have a sewer system, and everyone's pooing in the street after a week. I don't know if it's even a week, right? First warm day. Um, same thing, you know, uh, public water system, getting clean, fresh. San Francisco has the best water in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Public streets, right, that are paved. Um, don't have too many potholes. Lights, gas and electric, right? I mean, there are all of these common goods that property owners support with property taxes. Yeah. And not only do we support those common goods with property taxes, we still have to follow the rules for using all of those common goods, right? It's not like because we help pay for them, we're somehow exempt from the rules. So there's this historic 
agreement already that as a property owner, I'm willing to give up some things in exchange for some other good things. And let's keep going here because it's a lot of other things, right? Property owners are willing to accept property taxes that pay for schools and all of these other you know, common goods. We might not be thrilled about paying them, but we pay them. Zoning, right? If you live in a residential house, except for the city of Houston, which I still don't think has zoning, it was zoned to be residential. And that's a police power, right? Like it is a common law. Like it's everyone agreeing to say like, you can't build a factory here or an airport there or whatever you feel like building because you have to take into consideration your neighbors and their enjoyment of their life, right? So we're willing to put up with zoning, which is an incredibly restrictive police power. We're willing to put up with planning departments and building codes because people like things like life safety systems and fire sprinklers and exit stairs and exit lighting. So there is a history in America, pretty much since the, you could own real estate, of there being an infringement on your bundle of rights in exchange for getting some social goods. And let's face it, Prop 14 was an amendment to legalize discrimination. Governor Pat Brown knew exactly what he was talking about, and he was speaking the truth at the time. And, you know, while our organization tried to pitch this fight as housing freedom, it wasn't, right? It was housing freedom from selling your house to a Black person. Um, that was really the the freedom that they were fighting for, unfortunately. And I believe that ending discrimination is a valuable social goal. I'm willing to bet that you probably agree with me on that, Don. And as a property owner and just a member of society, I am willing and voluntarily want, I would take that limitation on the bundle of rights because ending discrimination is a really valuable social good, plain and simple. So I have a bunch of ideas about what CAR, California Association of Realtors, can do at this point. In 1967, the Supreme Court said Proposition 14 was invalid, but it was still used until, I think, 1974 when Proposition was repealed by Proposition 7, and then it became more enforced. But you know, this is 1974. Up until then, it was still, you know, like wink, wink. Okay, yeah, we'll do this and we'll do that. You know, 1974 really wasn't that long ago. No, I was born in 1975. So I prefer to think I'm not that old yet. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Prop 7 in 1974 was when it was finally stripped out of the California Constitution, having finally been, you know, ruled illegal by the federal Supreme Court as well, a couple of years prior. And you had kind of mentioned it just then, you know, that that kind of gave rise to this wink, wink, nudge, nudge behavior. Right. And I would argue that wink, wink, nudge, nudge behavior goes on to this day. Uh, it does in a way. Well, I should say in some cases it does. But there are so many ways a buyer or a seller can legally, you know, like bring legal vision on it that it's not as, you know, nothing like it was back in the 60s and 70s. We still have a long way to go. I mean, neighborhoods and communities in many places are as segregated today as they were 50 years ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
So to the best of my knowledge, the California Association of Realtors has never issued a formal apology for our sponsorship and writing of Prop 14 in 1964. And one of the things I would like the California Association of Realtors to do is to, as a membership body, vote to take responsibility and accountability for our predecessors' actions and issue you know, a formal apology. That said, words don't buy houses. <laughs> and I was going to say, I think you're going to be waiting a long, long time for the California Association to give a formal apology. Prop 14 did financial damage to minority communities. In America, real estate has historically been the ladder for wealth in America. And we worked really hard to make sure that Black people and minorities were excluded from that ladder. So my feeling is that at this point, I know this is crazy. Realtors never love taxes, especially new taxes. But I think the state of California should take a look at where it could find some new money. And I think there's lots of places to find new money. I think you could look at, for example, maybe a tax on companies previously headquartered here that relocated to Texas, for example. Um, you could look at a, a new wealth tax, maybe, you know, the super wealthy that are making more than 30 million a year. You know, there's a lot of places I sound like a politician already. There's a lot of things we could tax, but you know, if we're serious about making amends, then it has to be more than just words. And I think that we should find the money to fund both a 0% financing program for historically discriminated communities, kind of similar to, to the VA program, and also down payment assistance. I think if you can bring the 1963 average down payment in California was $4,000. I think if you can find that, we should work to set up a fund that can help cover the rest. And I actually think that our association should help fund that fund uh, in a meaningful way. We've spent tens of millions of dollars on other things and I think that we would be well served to spend tens of millions of dollars on this. So how crazy do you think I am, Don? Well, actually, I think your ideas are great. But, you know, I think, you know, like I was saying, or you said, actually, when someone mentions the word reparations, people tune out. When you mention the word tax, people tune out. That's going to be a high hurdle to overcome. People don't really want more taxes, and they're going to fight tooth and nail not to pay anymore. So I don't know where this these funds could come from, but I think your ideas are great. You know, let's see, the, the current state reps in this area are like David Chu, Phil Tang, uh, Scott Weiner. I can always ping them. They're actually legit politicians, and I'm sure they have... Tons of ways to come up with new taxes. But I think the takeaway I'm really getting from this, Don, is that my marketing department needs to come up with new words for reparations and taxes. Yes. And we just need to make it sound like something fantabulous, uh, which it would be in the long run, even if it has individual costs to people, the social good would far, far, far outweigh the individual costs. So we have covered an incredible amount of territory today. Don, thank you so much for joining me. And before we wrap things up, is there kind of anything else that you wanted to mention or, or make sure you said? 
No, I enjoyed the conversation. I mean, we kind of skipped around a lot, and I think that's basically my fault because I have this idea, and then I was off on a tangent or whatever. But I really did enjoy, you know, the podcast and, you know, sharing ideas with you. And I think your podcasts are great. In part two of our look at racism in California real estate, I've assembled an incredibly talented and diverse group of local agents and a community activist to explore racism in real estate at the local Bay Area level. My friend Dave Walsh, 2021 president of the California Association of Realtors, joins us for a few minutes in our next episode with the powerful statement. Here's a preview. First, let me say thank you, Matt, for the invitation to speak on the Escrow Out Loud podcast. This is an incredibly important subject that you are discussing, and it's great that realtors like yourself and Don Sanders are taking the time to engage in these tough discussions, given that we know the people of color experience crushing discrimination that was sanctioned by all levels of government in our country, and specifically by many realtor associations. You've been listening to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate. Experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast notes with links available at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast. 